Kid Bocha, a Darish from Hain, this I'm very pleased at any time as a former university teacher to be in a university. Uh, it encourages me to remember, and I think remembering as an active verb is very, very important. I also am very conscious of some of the distinguished people from Columbia that I have met in the past. I had the privilege of being a close friend of... I knew very, very well Miguel de Scotta Brockman, former foreign minister of Nicaragua and president of the General Assembly of the United Nations, who is a graduate of Columbia University. And also, of course, the different times I had the privilege of being and having conversations with the great and wonderful Edward Said. It's a great honor then to join you all here today in this, the oldest university in New York, one of the oldest in this country, were known not only for the contribution of its graduates to the formation of this state and to the United States, but also to the development of the cultural, social, and economic life of other nations. I should say I am aware that I'm addressing you on the anniversary of one of the most potent expressions of the great upsurge in student and worker activism that swept the United States and the world during 1968. Nearly 50 years ago to this day, the students of this university commenced a strike and a series of occupations in protest against the association of this institution of learning with a weapons research think tank and also against racial discrimination. The then Dean Henry Coleman was, as many of you will know, held hostage for a day and later gracefully wrote letters of recommendation for his would-be kidnappers. I can assure, reassure Professor Madigan that I will not be recommending a repeat of the endeavour today, nor would I suggest indeed false imprisonment as a method of eliciting resolutions that are needed to resolve what are genuine concerns available to be dealt with by discourse in an academic community. And I was very pleased to meet the students who are on strike, who are recognizing the, demanding the right to be recognized. I myself am the founder of the teaching section of the Workers' Union of Ireland a long time ago. And indeed, I remember in ancient times in industrial relations in Ireland, being served with one of those notices you could get at the drop of a hat from a judge, an injunction. I think I would urge the university, there is a right to join a trade union. Trade unions are part of the collective mediating institutions that we need to be able to bring us into new and complex times, collectively, economically, socially, and so on. And I do hope, the Vice President, that you will be able to sit down and resolve this issue in a way that respects both our general human and federal and state rights. <laughs> Apart from, I remember when I came to the United States for the very first time in 1966 and to become 
and research assistant and teaching assistant, Professor John O'Connor, at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. It was my first visit to the United States, and as a teaching assistant that particular time, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War, and your draft status was affected if you got less than a C in your grades, which put an immense moral pressure on myself as the person correcting Professor O'Connor's essays. I have to say that in that time, those two is the period of 1968, I think students in Paris, students in California, students in different parts of the world, they did have different versions of what was taking place. A former, a later president of France justified the breaking up of the University of Paris on the basis that it had all to do with sociology and philosophy, and therefore if you broke up the campus, you would in fact actually create a secure France. I think I remember I was in Manchester in 1968, and there were differences between different left-wing tendencies. Some of the least helpful would dismiss others by saying, he hasn't even read Althusser, you know. And I think, when I think back on it, one thing what it all had important, wherever they were, and I met many of them, they were people who students were acting with a vital purpose. And my wish for Columbia University is for it never, as I have said, in, I've spoken at the Sorbonne, at the London School of Economics and Politics, and my wish for them is that they remain academic communities, committed to Christian, critical scholarship, never yielding on the great resource that a university is for free thought, the right to read, the right to write, the right to be able to become involved in respectful dialogue with those of difference. And the students of 1968, full of energy, they were inspired, and they would in turn inspire similar movements of thought and action in, beyond those radical years. From the brave citizens who stood for greater democracy, I remember, in Mexico, and against authoritarianism in Czechoslovakia, to in 1969 as well, of course, the Northern Ireland civil rights movement on our own island of Ireland, which was demanding an end to over 40 years of sectarian discrimination. I try to tell you, because maybe there are some, many people, in this room who are younger than myself, what was it like for those of us to come to place uh, studying sociology, philosophy, or political science? We were coming really to be introduced to what was then modernization theory. There was great founding pillars of the Princeton studies from Gabriel Armand and Simon Verber, Huntington, McClelland, and others with their suggestion that the world was moving in an inexorable, unilinear tradition, direction towards development. And we could come and we would just be asked about what were the backward features of our country that were stopping us being like this successful industrial country. Orlando Falls Border would describe it later as learning we were, how North Americans were looking through ideological glasses at all of our societies. You could, in fact, where did we fit? If we weren't backward, backward, where on the continuum were we? On this evolutionist mythology, this suggestion that it was just simply a matter 
then the world would move inexorably on with uncriticized growth and that institutions would be just like the institutions that were just now obviously in a state of perfection and to which academic lives could be devoted with ease. From all of that, I think it took most of us more than a decade to critique modernization theory and see it for what it was, with its quiet racism, its evolutionism, the deep methodological and theoretical flaws that were in it. And I have to say it's not dead yet. I think also as well, to all the acknowledged diversities of the movements that were taking place in that time, in the 1968, what did they speak about? What was in the literature? And there were constant pamphlets being produced. They were speaking a demand for economic and social justice, a demand for environmental justice. You could have a debate in California on the difference between social ecology and deep ecology, a demand above all else for peace and all of the possibilities that peace brings. Yet the exuberance then of some of them in the fullness of time people looking back on it would choose to say that it had a kind of exotic character. But one thing I am not in doubt with even now, looking back at it all, was the strength and power of its moral vision. The moral vision, these young people, how privileged it was to be young, to have the opportunity of being in a place of learning, to be able to have access to books, to be able to do research and to be able to look out at the world and think that it might be different, that it mightn't be racist, that it mightn't be unequal, that it needn't conform to a single model, and that all the thought of the world was important, and that you could be both a poet and an economist and an anthropologist and a sociologist and all of this. That was the atmosphere of the time. It was not exotic. It was emancipatory. And it is what I wish for the student populations of the world today. It was a year in which one of the most important voices for peace, for global solidarity and for a renewed moral purpose, both in the United States and our planet, was silenced by the bullet of an assassin. Earlier this month, we marked the 50th year since Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee. Fifty years later, we are invited again to live in the shadow of war with all its restrictions and all of its supporting structures that absorb the best of intelligence and science and technology and which see diplomacy as something to be discarded and moving too slow. On Tuesday, I addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations as part of a two-day meeting held on the challenge of peace building and sustaining peace. The good news is that in the reports we discussed, a very specific repeated recognition of gender and a recognition of the importance of youth to achieve important issues like sustainability and an adequate response to climate change. And in preparing my remarks for that meeting, I recalled the declaration of solidarity that Dr. King made 51 years ago at Riverside Church. It, isn't, it is not five minutes' walk from where we are today. For it was there that Dr. King drew together all the strands of the movement for civil rights and equality in this country. And he spoke of an enlarged solidarity 
with those who suffer injustice in other places. He was, of course, speaking of the Vietnam War. And how, when we think back on it, how can anyone think that they could ever have justified the bombing of Laos and Cambodia, non-participants in a war? And if I may quote Dr. King, there is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments of hopes and new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything on a society gone mad at war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. These powerful words of Martin Luther King we must recall today in the first decades of the 21st century. We are still speaking of a society gone mad on war. The rhetoric, if you like, based on a politics of fear, it completely defeats discussions of a diplomatic kind that might respect complexity in which you have appeared to be moving too slow. And yet, in the universities of the world, in the societies of the world, there are beautiful words in Irish for all of this. Our word for creativity is cruhiach, and for our imagination it is sauliach. And there are in the dead languages, and ours as a living one, many, many times when people spoke about equivalent, about equivalent words. And there always is in humanity the possibility for creativity and innovation. And it is why Martin Luther King's rhetoric draws from an emancipatory tradition, a tradition of rights, but also a biblical tradition that was drawing on the prophetic and saying that as long as you breathe, you must be able to hope. But I think it is something, I think, that is very serious. Fifty years ago, after Columbia University students sought to sunder the relationship between the academy and the armaments industry, too many of our finest minds are still called upon or induced to devote their skill, cultivated over so many years in our institutes of higher learning, to discovering new and more effective ways of killing, and sometimes of killing and wounding and injuring without, with impunity. A joint report of the World Bank and the United Nations in advance of the meeting I attended last this week, indicated that in 2016, more countries experienced violent conflict than at any time in the last 30 years. And yet, reported battle-related deaths in 2016 were 10 times higher than the post-Cold War high of 2005, a decade. This has occurred in both lower and middle income countries, including those nations considered to have relatively strong institutions. 
which had long been considered a prerequisite for economic expansion and social peace. I, as an aside, say, we cannot continue to neglect the assumptions of the economic models that have in fact gave us modernization theory. And however difficult it is, we must be able to have a heterodox approach towards scholarship, which will enable us to recognize cultural difference, the importance of gender, and history. There's this surge in violence that I have referred to, a ten times, a tenfold increase between 2005 and 16, can occur at the very same time as the internationalization and liberalization of capital and goods markets often referred to as globalization, and indeed debated and discussed in this institution with distinction. I think it deserves our attention. A globalization of trade, it might be, a globalization of awareness for ethical interdependence, it is and was not, nor indeed does it aim to be. There were, I think, moments, of course, when people genuinely did believe that this was so. Well-meaning liberal advocates of the universalization of laissez-faire in its day, such as John Bright or Richard Cobden, leaders of the Anti-Corn Law League of 1840s Britain, they foresaw a world of free trade and free capital markets as one in which swords would be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hoops as nations made trade, not war. They believed that, and I respect that they're believing in it. But the First World War, that collision of empires that consumed a generation of the young and threatened the old, told us that peace does not rest upon common markets or upon processes such as globalization. For did not that war begin during the previous high point in the interconnection of capital and goods markets? Peace, as Dr. King may have reminded us, depends upon a recognition of a fundamental dependence and solidarity between, between us, upon our capacity for compassion and empathy and sympathy, and upon our shared commitment to institutions through which we may discern together the common good and unite behind collective endeavors. In the universities of Europe today, how many from the philosophy departments are advising the prime ministers or advising governments? How many in any part of the world? And does this tell, what does this tell? Something interesting. It is as if metrics useful as a source of judgment have in fact displaced judgment itself. And beliefs on the narrowness of metrics have in fact displaced philosophy. When we speak of nation-states whose institutions, whether through habit, intellectual formation or practice, tend to view the world through the prism of a narrow realism, a real difficulty with that term anymore, which in its distortion of empirical facts, realism that does not submit itself to empirical test, negates the very conceptual value of realism itself as a concept or indeed a philosophical tool. And any attempt to build that vital solidarity of which I speak is regarded by some as hopelessly naive, a kind of 
as having a normative moment, a normative emphasis that is doomed to fail. In a global state fist system, we are told, founded on the principles of the peace of Westphalia, curious regio aeus et religio. To accept such a conclusion would, of course, be to ignore the very lesson that such as Dr. King sought to teach us. Nation states are made by their citizens. They speak in the name of their citizens. Even in authoritarian societies, the capacity exists through collective action and through imaginative solidarities to redefine what is so often pre presented as an imprescriptible national interest. It is with sadness and more than on one occasion that I have reflected on all that could have been, not just here in the United States, but across the world, if Robert F. Kennedy, a man very close to the hearts of the Irish people, had not been taken from us in that summer of 1968, only two months after Dr. King. Robert Kennedy was an unusual pragmatist, Yet he seized the moment and the atmosphere of the times with characteristic courage and idealism, drawing upon the energies of the movement that Dr. King had done so much to craft and to propose a renewal of the role of the United States in world affairs. In this decade, may I suggest, and the decades to come, we must prove ourselves, discover it in ourselves to be capable of demonstrating that same informing moral vision and that same spirit of pragmatic idealism that animated Dr. King and Robert Kennedy and others as we seek to meet the challenges that they confronted in their time. The requirement for just, sustainable and inclusive development throughout the global world. The resolution of conflicts through discourse and diplomacy conflicts both ancient and new, the imperative to confront the great inequalities that divide our societies, the urgent need to welcome those fleeing from war, persecution, famine and natural disasters. We must do so with what Professor Richard Falk has recently called, suggested in a tribute to your graduate of the University, Miguel de Scotta Brockerman, as ethical radicalism. And I sometimes think about the impact of the communications technology that has developed since that time I came to the United States first. Now we know of every famine. We cannot say we didn't know. In Ireland, there is a huge response always in relation, in relation to, to famine. But is it not the case also when you see a deepening inequality in all of the indicators, and we have a massive explosion of population in some of the poorest conflict zones of the world, and we have an event such as Davos, where a very small number of people present themselves as gods come to earth, and the television sets of the world consumes them. And we do not turn a hair to hear that less than 500 people control as much wealth as the bottom 40% of the population of our planet. Are we morally strong to be in that condition? Or are we not closer to what Pope Francis has called
keeping in a condition of indifference that is dangerous. In this, I think, too, it's interesting to ask ourselves, how can we recover this sense of moral urgency? As I've said, Professor Falk called it ethical radicalism. And we do face new challenges. They were in the 1960s in the hubristic atmosphere, in the Faculty of Modernization Theory, and out in the cafe shops. We were, I think people were struggling to come to terms with what, what was biodiversity, not to speak of the loss of biodiversity. The implication of the changes to nitrogen, phosphorus and sulfur cycles, the catastrophic effects of climate change brought about by the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. They have arrived on our doorstep now, not to be ignored. And these neglected challenges of then of the bad models in economics and of the broken connection between ecology, economy and society, they are now global in the scope of their threat and they can only be met by global institute solutions, coordinated in the only global institution capable of representing the majority of the peoples of the planet, the United Nations. And is it, was it not then, and is it not now thrilling to read the declaration contained in the opening lines of the preamble of its founding charter? We, the peoples of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. In larger freedom. It will no doubt be familiar to an American audience as it reflects inter alia the four fundamental freedoms to which Fra President Franklin Delano Roosevelt committed the United States in his State of the Union address in 1941. He said, in the future days, which we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way wherever in the world. The third is the freedom from want, which translated into world term means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. And these freedoms and rights required to be vindicated and secured not just as civil rights, but as economic and social rights. And they were codified in the Proclamation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, in the drafting of which another great New Yorker, Eleanor Roosevelt, played such an important part. In affirming the dignity and equality of all men and women on our planet, the Declaration stands as vital moral achievement. The United Nations, whatever its imperfections and mistakes, and they are many, is the only institutional space where all the nations, irrespective of sight and background and history, might, as might aspire to be present and to offer their views. 
Those early days asking children the third writing about it spoke, about the atmosphere in the gallery of the United Nations, and the whispers in the gallery as they discussed the prospects of peace and freedom from global poverty, and how a new world was coming into being, and their leaders were behind the signs announcing the new countries that had thrown off the yoke of imperialism. And later those leaders would write in their biographies of how they wept on their way home when they realized that the promises made were not going to be fulfilled. Julius Nariere is a typical example. I realized they weren't serious. Now there are of course institutional rigidities contained within the structure of the United Nations. For example, the Security Council, the organ of the United Nations charged with maintaining international peace and security is dominated by five permanent members whose individual veto powers and, may I suggest, narrow and often self-serving interpretation of what they call their national interests sometimes frustrate concerted action. Yet considering the scale, scope and reach and relative success of the United Nations peacekeeping operations, and Ireland has been at it for 60 years, at any time a thousand Irish men and women keeping peace in different parts of the world, the Security Council has sometimes been able to be moved in terms of general interest. It is worth the attempt and even the occasional success. It is the General Assembly in which at its best the aspirations of the peoples of the world are most fully represented. It was in that form that the newly free nations of the colonial world came. After a long and unremitting struggle for independence in different forms, national liberation from old empires to take their place in the councils of global affairs. And you know at that particular time Erskine and Childers who worked at the United Nations spoke about how it was done in Africa. The flag of the old empire which was in a football stadium. The lights would go out so that you wouldn't see the imperial flag going down. And then the new flag went up and the BBC would comment, a new country joins the ranks of free nations, free to make its own mistakes. And for that, Erskine Childers was fired from the BBC for checking that comment. In the atmosphere of the Cold War, of course, the newly free were sometimes dragged into, subsumed into the rivalries of the two blocks, condemned to be proxy battlefields upon which the two foes projected their considerable power. And as I'm speaking in Columbia University, it was very interesting about scholarship. All the anthropology could study how backwards societies structured their disputes. And then the anthropologists were all either came home or were sent home. And suddenly in the new regime, should you use anthropology for peace, no. Anthropology for new and different forms of cultural development, no. I think I so recall those proxy battlefields. I was a member of the Irish Parliament, as you have heard, during the 1980s. I so draw attention of the Irish people to the subversion of the fragile democracies of Central and South America. I was in Salvador in 81, writing about the massacre of Morasan. I was observador uno 
to the Proceso and the Plebiscito in Chile where Pinochet sought to remain in office for life. And I was appalled too when the Soviet Union deployed its armed forces to crush the Prague Spring. And I think too often how in fact actually those destructive statisms of some of those countries have devalued what were very genuine and progressive alternative views of economy and indeed of socialism. But let us recall that Vietnam and Afghanistan both suffered terribly at the hands of both the United States and the Soviet Union, each one in the one place and the other in the other, seeking to deny the other a falsely perceived a strategic advantage. The end of the Cold War brought with it the opportunity of renewed international cooperation. The atmosphere was heady. The possibility of finally acknowledging unfair trade, odious debts, great in poverty, inequality, an opportunity of addressing global environmental degradation and its deleterious effects on the ecology of our shared and vulnerable planet. With the peace dividend that would now emerge, enabling us to devote the resources and energy that had been diverted to arms production towards a shared prosperity. Should that not be the mission still of universities and academies all over the world? The prosecution of a theory of interest by the most powerful, a loss of critical capacity at analytical level, a pressure for even the academy itself to belong within an uncritical neutilitarianism has made moral reflection within the academy seem reduced now to the level of a tolerated exotic indulgence. And thus Pope Francis can speak of a, a cultural indifference. And it is built on a, an impotence, somehow or another stored, sourced originally in vulnerability, that leads to a kind of fatalism that you can do nothing but let the roof of your house of the world fall in. Yet, there have been extraordinary successes upon which we must pin hope. One that we can build, some ones that we can build on. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Convention on Biological Diversity, and the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. They stand as expressions of practical realism, practical global solidarity, representing not only the three great achievements of the Rio Earth Summit of 92, but the primary vehicles through which we will organize our efforts to confront the environment threats that face humanity in this century. The Millennium Development Goals, and as everyone at this stage found words to a troublesome, they would always be referred to as the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals and marshalling member states, the international financial institutions in the United Nations and its agencies, behind a common purpose and commonly agreed set of targets. They provided an example of what could be accomplished if nation states and international institutions were prepared to dedicate their resources to the vindication of freedom from want. I like to speak about a civilization of sufficiency. But there were failings in the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs. The goal is the most ambitious of which was to eradicate hunger and extreme poverty. We're only binding on the Global South. In their formulation and preparation, the voices and assumptions of the Global North 
carried more weight than the countries to whom the goals applied. The collectivity of the ghosts of modernization theory were powerful. Above all now, however, in this the tenth year since the onset, I think, of the global financial crisis, we should acknowledge that the international economic policy framework of the early 2000s reflected a hubristic faith in the efficacy of liberalized capital markets and free financial flows, a faith that had dominated World Bank and the International Monetary Fund since the 1980s. The World Bank in its day would regard agriculture as not suitable for investment in Africa. Then it changed its mind. Then it printed in another document, education is the next big thing in Africa, and so on. It, to his credit, the former chief economist of the World Bank, and one of the most eminent scholars in this institution, Joseph Stiglitz, did the world a signal service by revealing the economic and social damage visited upon the global south by the imposition of a narrow intellectual framework. I question the word intellectual. Yet the framework is evidenced in the courses at Economics 101 in universities and business schools across the globe. What is taught in Economics 101? Not one university in North America teaching 15% in the history of economic thought or of political economy. Metrics instead of metrics on its own, instead of metrics as contribution to knowledge. It has a medievalist ring, all of this. I think of Galileo, this unquestioned form as a kind of natural law of economics. I am speaking, of course, of the theory of government and governance that we are now sometimes allowed to speak of, of as neoliberalism or as others call it, the ideology that dare not declare its name. We know its policy agenda all too well. The removal of all constraints on growth, the use and flow of capital and wealth. The redistribution of income upwards through sharp reductions in the taxation of capital and introduction of charges for public services. The dismantlement of collective bargaining and institutions of wage and price coordination. Yet all the research tells us again, and from good universities, that unequal societies are sick societies, and that societies with strong equality are healthier societies. Yes, and it is heartening to see that now the international financial institutions, once responsible to the United Nations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, are beginning to return to some elements of the wisdom of their founding father, John Maynard Keynes, and to recognize that the regulation, even controlled by the state of capital flows and the public interest, should not only be permitted, but should at times be actively encouraged. Does any serious economist who has studied the subject for a week believe that you don't need the state to give a lead in relation to responding to climate change or achieving sustainability? And then, too, there is a growing and welcome literature from such as Professor Mariano Mazzucato on the entrepreneurial state and its role in sustainable economics. Around the period of the hubris, that intellectual framework that made it all possible, 
was the notion that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, all activity of the state was bad, and therefore all activity in the private sector was good. And thus we're left now with the situation of, for what therefore should the state be there? Does everything belong to the market, life itself? Of course, there is the hilarious article that someone says, matters of love and marriage should be left to the marketplace. What once seemed inevitably and ideologically locked institutions, though, they are now beginning slowly to turn their attention, not only to the undeclared assumptions of bad and dangerous economic models, poor methodology, but also, I welcome it, the measurement and tackling of income inequality within and between nations. And they've recovered something that's a mixture of pop psychology and economics called behavioral economics. This renewed focus on what Ireland does not forget, some of the most fundamental questions of political economy are welcome. And I hope it will lead to a recovery of the critical inquiry that is necessary. One that is open to questioning the old and stale orthodoxy of what is, I see, known as a non-moored economics, which claim to encompass and explain in its arrogance the totality of our social and physical reality. On that point, and to finish this, if I mention student protests in 1968 at the beginning, half a century later, in Paris and in Cambridge, Students have initiated protests. But guess for what? They're asking simply to be allowed to be, hear economics from different perspectives. They're holding protests in Paris and Cambridge on the right to have a broad curriculum, to hear the history of economic thought and an introduction to different economic models, 50 years after 1968. I believe that something of the spirit of a long-delayed humility which may be breaking out for a time after the financial crisis pervaded the global north, and it informed the negotiations of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. That is our great success, which included the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and the fact that they were negotiated for all and applied crucially to all members of the United States. The agreement of the 2030 Agenda by under 93 nation states here in New York in September 2015 was a significant moral milestone, a departure for our planet, representing the shared resolution after all I have been describing, the nations of the world to attempt again through shared action to end poverty and hunger, combat inequalities in income and opportunity and gender to build peaceful, just, and inclusive societies, reverse environmental degradation, create conditions for shared prosperity. In a word, to achieve the larger freedom that President Roosevelt spoke of 77 years ago. But to do so, you must have the space and the capacity and the willingness to test the models by which you do it. And this shared commitment is so different in character from the imposition of any neoliberal structural adjustment program of the past imposed by the international financial institutions or any of the diktat of the powerful emerging from the Security Council or from any single power. Incidentally, as President of Ireland, I have again and again acknowledged how proud I am that Irish and Kenyan ambassadors worked so hard. They were appointed by the President of the General Assembly 
to facilitate the negotiations, and I'm proud of Ireland's role. And yet then, only three months after that agreement in New York, the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change came to a settlement. After all the warnings and the false dawns and the recriminations that finally recognised the demand of climate justice, they acknowledged what is nothing less than an imperative for survival of so many of the peoples of the world in this century. The global target agreed at the Paris Climate Conference, drafted in a crisis, yet even if the objective of limiting the global temperature increase to below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels is achieved, communities throughout the world will suffer terrible and unpredictable consequences. I spoke to some of them last evening, I speak to others this evening. Let us recall that the parties pledged to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. If we listen clearly to the advice, and may I say the warnings of the overwhelming majority of the scientific community, we must acknowledge that an additional half degree Celsius will have an enormous impact in terms of the reduction in crop yields, the severity of heat waves, disruptions to the water cycle and the oceans, and of course to the sea level rise. We must also acknowledge that there is some scientific debate as to whether we have as a species emitted so much greenhouse gases that we have effectively condemned ourselves to a one and a half degrees Celsius warming. But fear of failure should not dissuade us. It must spur us into action. And these two agreements, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Accord, they represent a hard-won global consensus. They are a success for diplomacy and the means by which we shall in this century be judged and measured as to our success or failure are those tests. They have the possibility of being the twin pillars on which a more peaceful world can be built, not only by preventing the kinds of environmental disasters which have begat and still continue to beget conflict, but by offering the possibility of realising the global solidarity and its delivery into policy, of which Dr. Spring, King spoke 51 years ago. That year, 2015, then, was a year of hope, a moment of hope, one that proved that despite cynicism that too often mars international relations, the nations of the world could discern a global common good and in doing so rededicate themselves to the founding principles of the United Nations. And now yet the shadows gather. We've already begun to see member states resile from their commitments, whether in the temptation of those who consider themselves to great powers to return to safe certainties and old politics of the Security Council and to the G8 as vehicles for global agreement, or through a new and quixotic isolationism, which would eschew the United Nations and turns instead to a bilateralism informed by some kind of false nostalgia for the 19th century rather than the needs of the 21st century. We, I think, in relation to Ireland, we have been making some progress. I think globally, in 2016, as we thought of what we had achieved in 2015, there was one good figure, military expenditure, was 2.23% the lowest since 2000. 
far below the Cold War heights of 6%, thus presenting the possibility that our intellectual and material resources could be mobilized for a new agreed purpose, not to fan the fires of war, but to cultivate the possibilities of peace. Yet some of the permanent members of the Security Council are now preparing themselves for a new arms race. And the arms race industry is delighted, buttressed by vast state contracts as it continues to export weapons of death and destruction for use not at home but in Syria and Yemen and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Let me be direct. It would be easy for me to say to merely criticize the intention of the United States to withdraw from the Paris Accord in 2020, the year in which its targets, which include commitments to large sums for climate adaptation in the most vulnerable parts of the global south are activated. And yes, that is a great disappointment for the entire global community, that a founding member of the United Nations, one which did more than perhaps any other to inflect the organization with a characteristic spirit of democracy and daring should now be turning away. There is, however, and it is my final point, a more insidious risk to our shared global commitments, whether they were made in Paris or whether they were made in New York. It is that we, and I speak here of the global north and of my country, if we were not truly authentic in our words. Now, Lira's words ring in my head. They didn't mean it. And that maybe it can be suggested that we did not intend to take the difficult and necessary sacrifices demanded of us over the next decades. And some feel that we shall not sanction the substantive change to the global political economy required by the promised new global solidarity. In a hall with so many young, it is authenticity that the young and so many of the old on the streets of the world find missing from the discourse of our times. And they so easily see behind the spectacles that are contrived as substitutes for agreements, that are thrown where words, that are thrown out of context and out of commitment to get the slot in the news. For example, more than in any other place on earth, the continent of Africa, which will now be the crucible for the global challenges I have been describing. It is bearing and will continue to bear the greatest consequence of climate change, with all the possible implications for the displacement of people, the degradation of the environment, the eruption of new conflicts over diminishing natural resources that that will bring. By 2050, the continent of Africa will contain 2.5 billion people, of these, 1.3 billion will be young people. There is the challenge. Should they wait for their sustainable development until the meetings of shareholders in the North have been convinced that investment in Africa is a good thing? Or should, alternatively, they not have the right for science and technology and all of the inventions that are needed for appropriate technology to leap over borders like culture and music and be available to enable them to achieve their sustainability. By mid-century, Africa will be the continent of the young, over 40% of the young people of this planet residing there. We must not be trapped into seeing this as a threat. It is in fact an opportunity. And when it is seen as a threat, 
perhaps by some of our European partners. It is that they are still informed, perhaps by the prejudices of a fading but still present colonial superiority complex. With so much human possibility, Africa has the potential to be the continent of promise and innovation and opportunity in our 21st century. One that will carry so many of the hopes and the dreams and the ambitions of a shared planet. A continent where a new symmetry can be recovered between economy, economics, ecology, ethics and solidarity. Built with science and technology, acknowledging cultural diversity, and it can be delivered with humane purpose from which we will all benefit. These hopes can only be realized if we stay true to the commitments we made to one another in the, those months of 2015, if we are to be authentic. It will require a convergence of vision between the institutions of the United Nations, the member states, organizations of regional cooperation, and if we are to be serious about it, the Bretton Woods institutions, including the World Trade Organization. Authenticity, respect for diversity, gender equality, these are the gifts of language our world needs. Can that inevitably, I think surely the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Climate Accord should guide any attempt also to renew the Doha round into which is taking place in great complexity. And may I suggest the diplomacy that we have been speaking about now and at the United Nations cannot be I, there cannot be a different diplomacy for the Doha round. If you are to say that, you are speaking with forked tongues. The diplomacy that carries the moral conviction of the General Assembly and the United Nations decisions must be the one that is at the heart of the diplomacy of the Doha round. I think that this is, of course, what happened in relation to the Millennium Development Goals. That is why they fell short. I think so. We must not either allow our gaze to be distorted or exhausted in the considerable quantity of rhetoric being expended on what are considered to be unfair or inimical bilateral trade imbalance, imbalances between wealthy nations, a kind of contest of the old ghosts of mercantilism. I think what we need now, we must, what everything I have said points, to the necessity for a renewed international discussion surrounding the role of powerful economic entities, including transnational corporations. After all, we should remember, as a starting point in any reflections, that over 80% of global trade now takes place in value chains linked to transnational corporations, as the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development has estimated. And this is surely even on its own limited terms, not the model of free trade that Adam Smith had in mind. It is much closer to the model of the economy proposed by Herbert Simon, in which most of the economic decisions regarding production, distribution and exchange take place within hierarchical firms. Firms that now claim immunity, that now claim impunity. I recall the president of one saying, after a case in Ecuador where the local people had been poisoned. We will fight this case until hell freezes over. And then we will fight it on the ice. And there was shareholder applause. I think where we are now 
if we recognize, dear friends, two years ago, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted Resolution 7262, which recognized that sustaining peace was both an end point and a process through which a common vision of a shared society could be crafted, in which all the needs of the people could be met. And when he assumed office as Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Gutierrez emphasized that conflict could only be prevented in his work if we were addressing, addre by addressing the root causes through the three pillars of the United Nations, peace and security, sustainable development, and human rights. That must be the priority of everything we do. I agree with the Secretary General. And he has outlined an ambitious plan of action, which has Ireland's support. And may I finish by recalling again the words of Dr. King when he said in his penultimate sermon, we are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. That mutuality and that solidarity demands that member states and the communities that support them remain authentic to the commitments that they made to their peoples and each other, particularly through those two landmark agreements of 2015. And it demands that we summon up again the same optimism that informed the United Nations in its founding moment, and the same vigor, energy, devotion, and idealism that Robert Kennedy brought to his campaign for peace in this country 50 years ago. Above all, it demands that same spirit of hope and righteousness that animated the students who sought to change not only a university or a city or a nation, but the world. And may they of a new generation, future generations, succeed in scholarship and practice, where often people such as myself have failed. And may they thus give meaning and authenticity to life and love itself. And may their world conform to the very best of their shared ethical, moral expectations in life for all of our global citizens. Mila Buitas, Gramaki, thank you.